O clap your hands, all ye people, shout unto God with the voice of triumph. For the Lord Most High is terrible, he is a great king over all the earth. He shall subdue the people under us and the nations under our feet. He shall choose our inheritance for us, the excellency of Jacob whom he loved. God is gone up with the shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises unto our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing ye praises with understanding. God reigneth over the heathen. God sitteth upon the throne of his holiness. The princes of the people are gathered together, even the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong unto God. He is greatly exalted. Psalm 47 Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zell and Heidi, and we're going to talk about the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. Zellwin, how are you? Doing great, Willie. Today was a beautiful day, and I was able to do a lot of great things, try to get some stuff done today, do a little work outside, and it's nice just to be able to enjoy the warm weather for once. So I'm I'm feeling pretty pretty positive today, which, I don't know, maybe out of character for me, but it is what it is. <laughs> we had one unseasonably cool day this week. It almost felt like fall. It was in the 60s, and then everything started creeping right back up again. We're getting a lot of showers. Things are growing. Weeds are growing. Bugs are out. So, you know, it's good. A little humid, but it's going to get more humid. The weather has finally taken a toll on my, my Buick that I've had forever, and so the uh, the upholstery started to come down. So I had to do a very delicate procedure, which I call thumbtacking the upholstery to the roof of the car. <laughs> and uh, I, re- I highly recommend it. Uh, you know, <laughs> car, she just keeps going. Uh, as a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, I can I can do this uh, operation on your vehicle if you need it. <laughs> well, now, h- how long have you had this car? Since what, 1967 or something? No, it's or? only, it's only, uh, wow, is it, uh, is it 20... It's over twenty years old now. Yeah, so it's a it's it's a it's a quality Lesaber. <laughs> you know, uh, don't ask me about the catalytic converter, and don't ask me about the odometer, and we'll be fine. <laughs> I just I just have this picture of you, you know, trying to live out like Paul's injunctions here by driving this old beater car, so, or or is it just? Pure nostalgia. Which which one is it? Willie? No, it's just it's just pure uh, the thirty eight hundred series engine just keeps on running. And look, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It's like phones, and you know me with electronics too, Zelwyn. I will. I'd still be. I'd be recording this from an old IBM if I could. Um, just keep it keep it till it breaks. I don't need the latest whatever. I'll just keep on keep on going. I mean, one of these days we're going to start our tape ministry. So that's right for. For a pledge of nineteen ninety five a month, we'll send you a briefcase of uh, cassette tapes containing mine and Zelwyn's uh, rantings and manifestos. <laughs> it's it's the wave of the future. We're we're going back to go forward. So hard to ban it. Hard to ban it. You know, but no, I, I highly recommend the uh, you know the holding onto the car and as as long as you can maintain it. It's one of the last generation of cars that you can reasonably maintain easily too. Yeah, I know mine is largely plastic and. I'm afraid if uh, I had to actually do serious work on the engine, I would be at a loss because I'd have to have a computer to do it. So it it is it there is something wholesome about a vehicle you can fix everything on without having to resort to anything. Yeah. I mean, almost everything. It's not that old, but <laughs> all the important stuff. I don't need certain dashboard lights <laughs> or a working radio. A working radio. You just you just put a battery one in your thing, you know. It's not, the radio is easy to fix, but it does it does the cassette player still works. I'm proud to say, put in some vintage Greg Bonson or something on there. The cigarette lighter works pretty well, I'm sure. So. It's, it's still a it still has the cigarette lighter and ashtray. <laughs> Taking us, you're going way back here, Willie. Telling you, this is this is the way to go. We need to bring back cigarette lighters. Like you laugh at me, but you can hack some of your all's cars. With a with an iPad or something. When the government is going to shut down your vehicle while you're driving it, Willie's going to still be going. <laughs> yeah. Mine will just be breaking emissions rules and everything until <laughs> whatever. And there's a lot of them in junkyards, so I, I feel like I've got parts. Uh, you know, it just feels good. 
it is good. It and it's is not good. my only vehicle, but she keeps she keeps on trucking. She's good in the winter. And uh, this is now a uh, cheap car podcast. So, <laughs> oh, you collect classic cars? Yeah, I guess you could say that. I, I just like keeping my money. Yeah, I got this stack of VHS tapes over here too. Also classic. <laughs> so anyway, speaking of not holding on to treasures in this world, we're going to talk about the ascension of our Lord today. So that was a uh, beautiful transition, by the thank way. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> we are uh, we are nearing Ascension Day, and some of us may or may not be moving it uh, to Sunday in the Papist fashion and having Ascension Day observed. A uh, daily reminder, there is actually no Ascension Sunday. It's just Ascension Day that you moved. People forget it. But it's there seems to be a big revival as far as putting Ascension back on Ascension Day. So that's a positive thing. You celebrate every feast day in your parishes, I believe. Everything from Ascension to Spuds McKenzie Sunday. <laughs> so proud well, of you. Not, not, not quite all of them, no. But we actually do have Ascension on the day that this is releasing because we're on Thursday. But I did actually move the observance of Ascension at my previous call. We would go to the to the following Sunday, and like one year I did it the Sunday before because I'm just kind of weird like that. But <laughs> well, I think I think this episode's done. <laughs> and with that, this has been a word fitly spoken. But if a word fitly spoken, please go listen to lesser podcasts because because this this one's over. <laughs> but no, I I think it's a wonderfully wholesome thing to observe. And I think it's something that should be done more in every parish, honestly, even if it's something as simple as getting together with like in your circuit, if you have some churches that are nearby and you want to hold a joint service, I know that that's what they do in my circuit here, you know, in the city kind of a thing. So that, that is something I think is also a good way to observe the day, you know, just to, to get something because it is such an important day that we often overlook. So Jesus talks about this several places in the Bible, probably most notably John 16, I must go to the Father. He connects it intimately with the coming of the Holy Spirit. So we go from Ascension, then very quickly we'll celebrate uh, Pentecost. And so the Ascension of the Lord is connected to the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's connected to Christ's intercession. It's connected to Christ's care for the church, Christ's victory. There's so much packed into this. And so really the, the best, I think, place that, you know, this, this really clear narrative is going to be in Acts chapter one. Although, like I said, Jesus does mention it's going to happen. The disciples have no idea what he's talking about. I'm going to go to the father. If I don't, the spirit, the helper won't come, but because I go to the father, he's going to come. And they're like, we don't know what you're saying, Jesus. And so this is, this is playing out here then. Um, in the book of Acts. So, uh, Zolan, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so looking at the first chapter of Acts, which is probably the most basic passage to talk about the Ascension itself, although we're going to find it's much more factual, and then we're going to look at other passages that actually talk about what it means for us. But what we have here is a very clear description of what happened 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead. And that is that he actually was lifted up. This is uh, Acts 1 verse 9. And a cloud took him out of their sight. Yeah. So in the most basic sense, that is what the ascension is. That Jesus literally goes up into the sky and is hidden by a cloud um, so that they no longer see him. Right. I mean, it, it's important to note here that this is, like I said, a literal thing. You know, Jesus, right. we're not, we're not going to try to explain this away or say that it was spiritual well, or something. You know? And I would also add that the ascension of Jesus is in the biblically inspired, Holy Ghost written ending of the Gospel of Mark. Amen. So then the Lord Jesus, after he'd spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So... There you go, folks. Handle snakes, our Lord's in heaven. It's going to be fine. <laughs> it does feel kind of weird to have to, you know, sit here and defend the long ending of Mark. We should do a we should do an episode on that. If Word Fitly wrote a commentary on Mark, it would only need one author. Let the reader understand. <laughs> I like it. I like it. 
But the reason I emphasize like the literalness of the ascension is because sometimes I think you either get people who will say, oh, well, does that mean that Jesus went through outer space or something like that? Right. Or that, you know, oh, well, that's just, uh, you know, an old, like an early modern or an ancient way of viewing the right. world. And that's why we can't accept it, because we know better now. <laughs> yeah, our cosmology is better. Our science is better. We know things. It, it, it's like, um, I don't want to use this example because it's cringe, but I'm going to. It's like people like Star Wars, the, the, the real ones, and then George Lucas tried to explain what the Force was in the new ones. You remember, you know, right? And it's and it's it's kind of that's how cringe you are when when you try to say biblical cosmology isn't real and miracles don't happen and the ascension isn't real. I like how you say the new ones, like you know, like they aren't twenty years old now, like yeah. they aren't twenty years old at this point. Yeah, and there's the whole Disney thing. I guess there is. I don't know, <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I mean, because you do get these kind of you know, absurd interpretations of like, well, Jesus is still traveling through outer space or something like that. <laughs> Jesus was hoisted into a tree. <laughs> but but you do end up with this, you know, uh, it's kind of a debate among reform circles, right? How can a body ascend? And they'll just, at least there, they could admit a body. The resurrected body can do miraculous things. They'll admit he can pass through a door and he can be in heaven, uh, but he's got to have a local presence only in heaven. And that's what you get into, this kind of silly speculation of, well, where, how is he occupying space? But the fact is, um, he is forever, the divine nature is forever united to the human nature. He ascends uh-huh. bodily into heaven, and he will return bodily, and then resurrect you bodily. Very important. His glorified body is what it is. And so he ascends into heaven. He goes up. Very important. And we need not have these silly little quibbles over, you know, is he, where is he? Is he in Kolob or Kobol or someplace? (laughs) Well, I mean, I think, because I think the thing to remember here is the point of what Luke is trying to tell us in the book of Acts is not how far up Jesus goes into the sky, which is, which is where I think people kind of get hung up. Does that mean he like, the point is, the point is to what seat does he go to? Right. Which is why I think the cloud is so important here, because this isn't just like a cloud passing over, you know, whatever. This is God's cloud, as yeah, I like this to is, say. Yeah, the presence of God, and it mimics the following the Hebrews in the wilderness. It mimics the cloud coming in judgment. It, uh, all of this that you see, the Son of Man. Um, this is all here, right? Uh, this is. I shouldn't have said mimic. It isn't. It doesn't mimic. It is that cloud. It's the same cloud, right? Yeah. Wherever the cloud is, this cloud is, that is where God is. You see this also in the transfiguration when a, a cloud hides Jesus from their sight for a time until it's taken away kind of a thing. Um, so again, the fact that the cloud takes him out of their sight shows that he has now entered into where his father is. Right. So again, it's not how far up he went, but where he went, which is yeah. to sit down at the right hand of God. Right. And now he is at that right hand. He is in this position of authority. He's very clear that he has the father's authority in his earthly ministry. When he like, this is the authority I have. This is what I'm taking up. The two angels here. I mean, they're, well, they're two technically men in white robes, but we know, we know the score in the book of Acts. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go to heaven. So he's going to return in that cloud. Storm clouds of judgment rolling in. The end of all things is at hand when we see this cloud again. Right, right. And that Jesus will come down in the same way that he went up. You know, again, not an emphasis on how far down he's coming. Like, we got to get distance out of the picture. And here's the thing uh, as well. Sky, the sky is important here because Jesus tells us there will be deceiving signs in the sky that precedes his coming because the devil knows and his messengers know that this is how the Lord will return. They know how he went to heaven, how he ascended to the right hand, and they know how he will return. So they will have deceiving signs to mimic power in the heavens that will come. Right. With the intent of leading astray. Right. And, And many will be led astray by this. Yeah. Right. Right. 
kind of kind of kind of makes you do a big think with all the things going on right now, doesn't it? It does. It very much does. They're coming. Don't be deceived. But I but I really but I think with this passage though, what we see happening is, you know, even though the disciples are looking up into heaven trying to figure out where he went, you know, kind of like the the disciples of Elijah did after he was taken up into heaven, you know, they want to go look for him. The point is is that even though Jesus has gone away for the time being, that is not something that is, how do you want to say, like a permanent kind of thing. It's not something that is, oh, well, now we have no hope because Jesus going away, as he says, is so that the spirit will come. Mm-hmm. So, yes, this time period in between uh, when Jesus ascends and Pentecost, like first Pentecost, you know, is a period where maybe there be some questions, that sort of thing. But once the Spirit comes, as Jesus promised that he will come, then we enter into the time period that we're in. So, yes, we've we've gone into a period of waiting again, waiting for our Lord to come back. But that doesn't mean that we're somehow, you know, alone right. or without hope. No, he is present, as we'll talk about a little bit later in the episode. But, you know, the Ascension and Pentecost go hand in hand. And now that the Holy Spirit has descended... The gospel is going out in the world and preparing hearts for the return of the king. Right. And, and so everything, everything works hand in hand. We have, to, we have to remember that. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit work in perfect unison. And is this a filioque time? Do you want to talk about who the Holy Spirit proceeds from? But well, that's let's not, my, let's, let's not get into that. <laughs> no, but my point is they're working in, 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 uni, in unison and working uh, toward a common goal. You know, Father sends the Son. Son is, um, you know, atoning for the sins of the world. Uh, he is our mediator. The Holy Spirit is applying those benefits. Uh, in a ve- that's a very simplistic way of explaining it, but it, it works. And so the Holy Spirit is going out, testifying to the truth of the risen and ascended Lord, cutting hearts to the quick, kindling faith in the hearts, washing and renewing through through the means, things like that. And and so we are waiting for we, the descension of the Lord. The second coming is a descension. Right. He has condescended once. He will descend once again. And and so we need to be a bit heavenly minded, as we're going to talk about, too, uh, to not be too earthly focused because your Savior is coming from up, up that way. Right. And, and we'll talk a bit about what that means. Right. And I, I think, and as you're kind of alluding to here, Willie, you know, we can come away from Acts chapter one with just kind of a, oh, well, that's interesting kind of attitude, you know, mm-hmm. that Jesus goes up, that, you know, he's, that the, all these things have happened. But now we have to ask ourselves, why? Why does Jesus ascend? Is it just because he said he was going to? Is it just for the sake of fulfilling another prophecy? Or is there something that it means something for us here and today? And I would even say that, you know, if you go through, especially the New Testament, although this is also predicted in the Old Testament, which we'll talk about a little bit too. Um, if you go through and tally up all the times that the Bible speaks of Jesus going up into heaven, passing beyond the heavens, sitting down at the right hand of God, you'd be amazed at how many different passages there are that refer to this. Yes. This is a pivotal moment because it means so much for us as Christians, which I, which is why I think it's a shame that more churches don't celebrate ascension. Well, yeah, whether you do it on the day or move it, you need to, I mean, I don't want to say it's better than the sixth Sunday of Easter or whatever, but, you know, it, it is what it is. But, you know, it, it is still something that shouldn't be, shouldn't be neglected. And, and for very uh, important theological reasons, you know. Right. Which, by the way, I mean, I think technically Exaudi is supposed to be styled as the first Sunday after Ascension. Maybe we should right. start calling it that now. <laughs> that would be a good one. That's how you get them to do it only on Thursday, is you just call that last Sunday the Sunday after the Ascension. Yeah, but the people also move Epiphany to Sunday, so it it is what it is. Right. In which, in which to be fair, that is the seventh Sunday of Easter. I know that, but <laughs> a lot of stuff on my plate right now. I'll get my six and sevens mixed up. <laughs> I'd be su- I'm surprised that you'd mix Exaudi up with Rogate, given your love of that I do Sunday. love Rogate. It's a great Sunday. <laughs> Gotta bless that seed and soil. 
But I think as we move forward into the next segment, though, we're going to start looking at some of the other passages, especially in the epistles, that really do unpack the meaning of the ascension for us as Christians, and we'll see what this what this event actually has to say to us today. Well, speaking of next segment, we've got to take our first break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken after this. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. We're talking about the ascension of our Lord. Well, we talked a bit about Acts 1, talked a little bit about, about, excuse me, talked a little bit about the ascension uh, in general, the importance of it. So let's take a look at a few other texts that really highlight the ascension. So we're going to go over to Psalm 110, famous verse, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Zellin, tell us a little bit about this psalm. Yeah, this this psalm is important for us because it emphasizes one of the reasons why Jesus ascends into heaven, and that is to sit at the right hand until his enemies are his footstool, until he finally puts all things under his feet. So, I mean, the psalm emphasizes things like, you know, rule in the midst of your enemies. You know, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath, executing judgment among the nations. So, I mean, it is this emphasis on Jesus as the victorious one, as the victorious king, now sitting down in his power and in his authority, basically beginning his triumph march, right? Yeah. Yeah. Psalm 110 is a very rich psalm, you know, and really just a, not a long one, uh, seven verses. And you, you have both Jesus as king and as priest here, because this is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Right. It's not just for Hebrews, kids. This is where it's from. And so you have this dual authority. Well, really a tri-authority if you want to if you want to separate king and judge, but I don't. So sure. it's a dual authority here where he is both uh king judge and and the prophet. Or and priest, rather. I mean he is a prophet, but you know what I mean. Uh so that's for another text. So anyway, yeah, so the high priest, king executing judgment, sitting at the right hand of the Lord. I mean, the Lord said unto my Lord, there's Trinitarian stuff going on in here. Just a densely, densely packed text. Well, and this is also related to like another Psalm, Psalm 68, a very famous one where it says, you know, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, Mm -hmm. uh, even among the rebellious that the Lord God may dwell there. So, I mean, this also is quoted in the New Testament, you know, in connection with the ascension uh, in Ephesians, right? In Ephesians chapter four. Right. And it, it's a, it's a fun text because I know that uh, in hip Lutheran circles, Jesus is not coming back to judge because I, I guess he doesn't do that. I don't know what, the, he, he's not coming back to judge the heathen. He's not coming back to fill the places with dead bodies. He will not wound the heads. I'm sure there's some magic with this one Hebrew trick. You can undo the entire meaning of any passage you want. Uh, buy my new book. I'm sure that's out there somewhere. And this, you know, that's why it's good to just go straight through text. You know, like with you and David, who are doing the lion's share of the revelation work, where you end up with texts like the wrath of the lamb, which is related right. to this. Right. Jesus is coming back in judgment. You know, it, it, the Bible describes that great and terrible day as a day of terror. For those who do evil. Right. 
And this is the thing. Jesus ascends as king of heaven. He is the judge of the quick and the dead. That should actually frighten you a little bit, shouldn't it? <laughs> I'm sorry, maybe I'm not letting the gospel predominate here. But if I'm preaching the gospel, Zelwyn, in such a way, if anybody does, that seems to imply that you can just be a, a murderer, a pillager, or whatever, because Romans 6 is not in your Bible or something, then you're wrong. Christ is coming to lay low the evildoers. He's depicted as a war king. I like how we take turns, you know, doing the bad cop, good cop sort of thing here. <laughs> right. You're, you're kind of on the law kick tonight, which is good. We need it. So We need it. Well, I mean, it, it just let, let the thing say what it says. Yeah, yeah but the, you know, the, the, the gospel promises are to those who trust in him, to the humble, but to the proud and the haughty, which, even, which can even be some people who think they're resting in the gospel when they're not. They're resting in some, something other than the gospel. They're resting in their own clever interpretations, you know, their own novel doctrines, maybe. They're resting in some kind of bizarre carnal security, and, and legitimately through these exegetical twistings. And it, and it wraps people up. And then you'll come to a text like this, and they'll just go, well, we'll just, we'll just put that away. But, I, but the good news is, as we see evil being committed in the world, Christians are again beginning to call out for justice and to call out how long, O oh Lord. And that's good. I mean, you're not, you know, you judge this with righteous judgment, but it's okay to say, Lord, how long until you come and, and rain judgment upon these people? The Bible gives you that permission. Uh, we're not cursing in, in, the, in the sinful sense, and you're not personally cursing your personal enemy, and yet you would pray that the, that the uh, enemies of God would be put underfoot. Right, right. Well, and, and especially like with Psalm 110 and with Psalm 68, you know, like you said, Jesus being depicted as a, a warrior king. I mean, you could see him as like a, a king who has just won a great victory, who is taking all of these, you know, captives in war, you know, making them slaves even, and he is leading them in procession, you know, in his triumphal procession, because he is the one who has gained the victory. He is the one who has overcome all things. He has overcome the world. And he will finally put all things under his feet on the last day when even death is defeated. So, I mean, we should not back away from or try to soften down this military language that the Bible uses to talk about the ascension. You know, Jesus is the, the conqueror mounting in triumph, as the, the hymn says. You know, he is the one going up in victory to, you know, sit down you know, as the victor king forever. And so all of these enemies that he that were fighting against him, whether they be earthly enemies or spiritual enemies, will finally be put under him. And that is something that we can rejoice on, you know, as we celebrate Ascension, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the return is coming. And right. uh, he will vindicate his people. And, and you who are struggling under the weight of the evil of this world, you will be lifted up. That burden will be taken away. You know, a lot of times people become smoldering wicks and bruised reeds, not because of some supposed internal struggle, although there is a lot of that, but because of the external forces that are on them that are beating them down. They are seeking to do what is right. They are seeking to live according to the word of the Lord. They are trying to believe the gospel and they are beaten down by the world outside of them. You know, we we depict we always depict it, or too many of us depict it as a purely internal struggle. And yes, there is always the internal struggle with our old nature. I get that that you can, but you can prevail at times. But the external struggle is not inconsequential. The people who cause little ones to stumble do not have a good outcome in the afterlife and in the day of judgment. So. As our people are buffeted on every side and they are scarred by the spiritual battle that they are going through, um, our Lord comes to vindicate them, to lift them up, to praise them for being good soldiers. Right, right. And for, and for fighting that good fight, because it is a fight that you're in. You're told to gird up your loins. You're told to be prepared. Soldiers of the king. Yeah. And I think it's also a beautiful thing to know that even in the midst of the fight, even in the midst of the battle, the victory trumpet has already been blown. Right. 
you know, that there is victory in the Lord because our Lord Jesus Christ sits as king in heaven forever. And that is something that should give us hope no matter what we're going through, no matter what we're facing, no matter how powerful the enemies of this world seem to be, no matter how corrupt things seem to be, even in our nation, Jesus is the king and he will return to put all things under his feet. And that will be a glorious day when that happens. Absolutely. And we look forward to that day. We pray for that day. Right. Bring your kingdom, will thy kingdom come. So very good. Well, let's... uh. So, so there is there is Jesus as the great warrior king. Well, now let's talk a little bit about the practical side of this. Then let's move over into Romans eight. Romans is a great book, you know, going from like chapter five to eight, where the one man's transgression, all of sin, but how much more, you know, those be justified through the greater Adam. On into six with the baptismal language and how we how we do not continue to sin that grace may abound. Chapter 7 with the internal struggle of the Christian against his own flesh, not doing the good we want to do, things like that, on into then this beautiful, uh, comforting chapter that is the eighth chapter of Romans. It's, it's a great chapter. It really is. I mean, and the reason we want to focus on this is because specifically towards the end of the chapter, it actually mentions Christ sitting at the right hand of God. So starting at verse 31, we're just going to look at a few of the verses here. Uh, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? who indeed is interceding for us. And then it goes on to say, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And I really do think that the great comfort we see here is that Jesus being at the right hand of God means that he is interceding for us. He is praying for us. You know, God the Son is constantly praying for you to the Father. Right, and nothing can separate you from him. You know, those whom he predestined, this is the preceding verse. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Then what should we say to all these things? Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised is the right hand of God interceding for us. What shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We're being guarded as sleep as sheep for the slaughter. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, the interesting thing is more than conquerors is one of those things that's put all over Christian trinkets and shirts and things. And you stop and think about what that means. That should the world take everything from you? Should it take the clothing off your back? Should it persecute you? Should a famine befall you? Should they come with the sword to behead you? What is going to happen? In all these things, you are more than conquerors. Why, Zelwyn? Because nothing can separate us from him. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, height, nor depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I would preach on this, but the text does it itself. <laughs> I was just going to say, you're just reading it, but I mean, it's it's great. It's <laughs> yeah. But and, and that is meant to be this comfort for us, that you... You who are suffering in this world for righteousness' sake, who are suffering for the sake of Christ, he has not abandoned you, and he does not abandon you. He is interceding for you. He is at the right hand of God the Father, and nothing can take him away from you. Nothing can snatch you out of his hand. And to you know, piggyback off John 6 a little bit there. So lift up your heads. <laughs> Be ye lifted up, because... This is your comfort, that our Lord who has conquered. In this world you will have tribulation, says Jesus, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You too will overcome the world in Christ. He tells you to be comforted by the fact that he has overcome the world. Right. And this is all back to the passages in John, talking about the Holy Spirit coming. So we're back full circle now. So, So the thing we want to focus on here 
is that one of the reasons why we know all of this, why we know that we are more than conquerors, why we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God, why we know that no one can bring any charge against us is because of Jesus. And as he says, who is at the right hand of God? I don't think we want to move past that too quickly. That, you know, Jesus sitting at God's right hand, Jesus having gone up into the heavens is the proof that all of these things are true. Right. Jesus is not in the grave. Okay, Jesus is not absent. Okay, he is present at the right hand of the Father. He is alive, ruling and reigning at God's right hand. He is very God. He is alive. He lives. And he lives forever with a human body as well. Jesus Christ sits in heaven in this position of authority, having redeemed mankind. And on behalf of his people, he is interceding. Right. I really want to talk about that interceding, too. Do you want to say anything else before we go on to that? No, go on. I think that that Christ interceding for us to the Father should be an immense comfort for us. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we we often talk about, you know, oh, I'm praying for you, that kind of thing. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to pray for you to God, to, you know, to let him know about all your cares and concerns. And we appreciate that, right? That, you know, other people are praying for us, that the church is well, praying for us. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Why would you bring James into this? But <laughs> Right. N- new series coming soon. <laughs> but... The fact that Jesus Christ himself prays for you? Right. I mean, that's <laughs> that's big. I mean, yeah. I, I, I don't even know how to put it into words. That right. our Lord himself is praying for you at all times, interceding on your behalf, especially that you would remain strong in the day of trial. Yeah. Well, he is that high priest forever. Yeah. Yeah. And there he is. And there it is. This This amazing truth of of who Jesus is. And so that means that whatever your care or concern is, it will be taken to the heavenly throne room and it will be answered yeah. according to the will of the Lord. But you can offer up a prayer for anything and you can offer it up with confidence and boldly. We do not receive because we do not ask, says the scripture. And so we lift everything up to the Father through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is interceding for us and he is giving us the answer to prayer that we need, even when it isn't what we want. Now, what's interesting is to bring the whole Trinity into this, when we don't have the words, when we are just deeply wounded and groaning, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Right. So you have everybody working for you. That that should really be a comfort to you. I mean, as Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us, you know? Right. As he he says here. But it's just... It's such a beautiful thing to remember and an important thing for us to remember because, you know, Jesus has been praying for his church since he went up into heaven. Yeah. You know, there's always that big old, oh, the Moravians prayed for 100 years straight or something like that. Yeah, well, Jesus (laughs) has been praying for 2,000. Yeah, probably even more than that, really. It's just to, to know that your Savior is that concerned about what's happening to you. Yeah. And, and, and that's an important, very important point, and we've, we've not really made it, is that he doesn't go, I mean, we haven't made it explicitly, he doesn't just go to heaven to take a break. Right. He's not going up there to like, I'm going to have a cigarette, then I'll be back. <laughs> no, he's, he's going into heaven as our high priest and continuing, and continuing that work. I think Hebrews makes that very clear. Yeah. Once for all, the sin offering made once for all, I understand that, but it's also eternal blood. But he also has that eternal priestly act of interceding for the people. Something which is far greater than any earthly priest could ever do, which Correct. was the whole point of the book of Hebrews. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. The earthly priests are David. Yeah. Just go read Hebrews. We don't have time to, <laughs> in this segment, to quote all of that. Yeah. We're just going to start reading Hebrews just verbatim. It's, it's right. a great book. Well, Paul knew what he was doing. <laughs> but, but the fact that if, if God cares that much about your situation, why are you still worried? And your salvation, your ultimate good. Yeah. You know, he, he is he is only giving you good things. So then you have to look at it in this great providential aspect of 
what God ordains is always good, uh, which right. is a big part of, of Romans as well. Uh, whatever befalls me is from the hand of the Lord for my good. And it depends all upon God who has mercy. And he has mercy on those who love him, who call out to him for mercy. Those are the ones that he hears. It's just, it's such a beautiful passage. I, you, you almost have a hard time talking about it just because of all of how significant, the, yeah. how significant right. it is, you know. Right. Agreed. The, the, this is, yeah. But to know that Jesus is for you should give you comfort in whatever situation you find yourself in today. Absolutely. And on that note, we've got to take another break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken right after this. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi. We're talking about the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we went through a little bit through Psalm 110, spent quite a bit of time in Romans 8, God being for us, what that means. God is our king. God is our priest. Well, now let's continue on kind of in this practical line and uh, talk about what it means to have our eyes fixed on heaven. I think the most natural place to talk about that is Colossians chapter 3 especially because Paul says right away in verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. I mean, he very clearly connects this exhortation to the ascended Christ, the fact that he is seated above us, and that's where we should be looking, right? right. But, what is, but what does that mean exactly for our conduct as Christians, Willie? Yeah. Well, I mean, the whole chapter, it's going to... You know, so set your minds on things that are above, not on things of the earth. And depending on how the segment goes, we might get into that. But the rest of the chapter will list things that you should put away, put those things away that are earthly, and then what you should put on, uh, what is good for us to put on, things that are not of this world by nature. And then it goes on to rules for Christian households, husbands and wives and things like that. Interesting how he does that. Right. It's all. It's almost like, to have a non-biblical household is, you know, sinful and not culturally conditioned. I don't know. I'm just a, <laughs> I'm just a pastor. I'm just a guy what reads the Bible um, and guards the flock. But so, yeah, I mean, he goes on. It's all about putting on the new self, but he begins with, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seeing the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are of this earth. And this is where we need to do away with the cliche. You are you, you don't be so heavenly minded. You are not any earthly good. Now, if when you say that you have in mind something like the Millerites who have sold all their stuff and who are just not preaching and not loving their neighbors and they're just sitting up on their rooftops waiting, okay, I guess that has some merit. But what is the real issue that most people have, and even most Christians have? They're they're not really thinking about the things of heaven. I mean, we we are of no heavenly use because we're so earthly minded, right? Hundred percent, and that's where we find ourselves just completely bound up in these things, and we can all get caught up in that. and And it's either caught up in the pleasures of the world, which is something that's harped on a bit, and rightfully so, but also caught up in the mundane and stupid things of the world, the things that don't matter. There, there are certain earthly things that do matter. And I consider evangelism an earthly thing. I consider Christian charity an earthly, I mean, an earthly thing that is worth pursuing because it is an earthly thing. But here in this context, it doesn't mean everything that happens in the earth. It means the ways of the world. And the right. ways of the world do, do not include charity or evangelism or love of neighbor. 
And so we get caught down to the mundane things. So, and I'll get to what those are in a minute. So he, he does say, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. There's that wrath word again, Zelwyn, in the New Testament, almost like it means something. Um <laughs> In these you once walked when you were living in them. Now, here's what I call the mundane things. You must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you put off the old self with its practices. You're a new self, so on and so forth. Being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. And these are the mundane things because we get so tore up. We get so upset about little things, or we're so quick to slander, so quick toward malice. and we need not be that way. And some, and it's often very hard not to be that way because as the little banal things of the world pile up, it's, yeah, I mean, you can get a little, a little worked up over those things. I mean, you just look at how people react to any number of things in our culture these days, you know, with the anger over mundane things. Yeah. And we, and we allow silly anger and then don't allow righteous anger and and we and we don't allow any pointed talk and say, well, that's not very Christian. When in order to get the work of the church done, we sometimes just have to have direct speech, right? Call a spade a spade, and you can't do that either. So you're, you're as a Christian, sometimes you're pinned between this perpetual outrage culture and then this inability to speak in direct language because it's not nice. And I would argue that that niceness is really edging towards sin. Because it's really just making an excuse for sin, or at least an efficiency, depending on where you're at. You know, well, we should be very clear here. You know, when Paul says to put things like anger away, he doesn't mean that you can never be angry. No, what he means is this earthly kind of anger, this silly kind of anger, this anger at the wrong well, kind of thing. I mean, he lumps them all together: anger, wrath, malice, slander, right. and obscene talk. Because that's that's the kind of thing he's talking about, right? Um, the, the losing your temper style thing. The not bridling your tongue style, and then not lying to one another, seeing that you put off your old self. So the the kind of anger that leads just toward the destruction of your neighbor. Right, right. I mean, because if if Paul was just saying in this chapter that you should be nice, well, then you might be able to say, well, Paul telling us to be nice isn't very nice. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know? right. So I mean, it, it's just one of these things. You know, the very passage itself shows that there is such a thing as a righteous kind of anger. Right. So the other point then on this would be to be so focused on the earthly things would be to try to solve every perceived injustice of the world. And you can't do that. And you also can't make God's justice equal to the shifting sands of earthly justice either. And so you have people who are basically going after whatever the new social kick is. And this has been going on forever and really been going on since the 19th century and trying to solve every societal ill. So from, you know, factory labor conditions, you know, substance abuse, which I think are laudable things to fight for. Excuse me. You want to fight for better working conditions. That's a Christian thing. You shouldn't want to fight for substance addiction. Fight against that. But there are noble social aims a Christian can have. But those things shift and shift and shift to the day where, you know, you can't you can't even talk about. Well, I mean, Paul's going to talk about sexual immorality and and passion, evil desires. Some Christians will say, for the sake of the gospel, no, 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 you may never talk about these things because Paul apparently didn't get the gospel. So the social kind of earthly reform minded churches are all passing away because they are earthly and the earth is passing away. They are worldly, and the world is passing away. That's why mainline churches are dying, because they don't have the gospel, and they don't have the spirit, and so then the word isn't being preached, the word isn't being planted, and so there's no fruit to grow from that. That's why the ELCA will not be here in 10 years. If that. If that. And and they're not even a Christian group now. Right. I mean, is that fair to say? Can I? Can we bring that judgment that a lot of the? I mean, the, the Episcopal Church in America is that Christian by any definition of the word? Because all they focus on is is this kind of wicked earthly thing, wicked earthly mindedness. They right. preach that there is salvation in names other than Christ. They preach that death is a good thing, and a culture of death is good. 
And so these are examples of people who would claim to have Christ in them, and all they are focusing on is the things that Paul says we should put to death, and they are lauding those things because they are perpetually outraged. And the things they're perpetually outraged about is the preaching against the very things that Paul condemns. No, I don't think it's too far to say such things because, I mean, we see it happening right before our eyes. I mean, and I think it's important to emphasize here, too, as you were starting to do, that there is such a thing as, you know, reforming society. There is such a thing as seeking what is the best for our, you know, culture, for our group kind of a thing. We should do that. Absolutely, we should do that. But the thing that Paul is talking about here is, you know, being earthly minded in a way that we lose all sight of heaven. That we well, become but that's so the point, focused here. But, that, yeah. but that's exactly my point. They think they're going to right every wrong here. Right. And you won't. And what they call wrongs are not wrongs. Right. Because what? how did the church originally reform Roman society? It was through the preaching of the gospel. Right. Right. Actually living as Christians. That's what changed yeah. hearts. Right. The, the preaching and the living. I mean, you can't separate those two. Right. The Christians act different. Christians love one another. They're caring for orphans and widows. They're taking in babies. And they're preaching this gospel. And through one way or the other, bit by bit, the empire is converted. Through preaching and through sword, whichever works. Um, I'll take it. And and so then let's talk then about sort of in the next half of this segment, how can one be heavenly minded? How can one keep their eyes fixed upon the sky, fixed upon Christ at the right hand of God? Well, I think the the simplest and most straightforward way, first of all, is to walk in the ways of God, to actually mm-hmm. listen to what he has to say to not quibble over it, to not try to make it into something else, but to listen to what Jesus says and then to do it. <laughs> right. Uh, we talked about prayer a lot and to kind of piggyback on, because it's rare that I name a certain synod or, or name a, a denomination that's gone. I'm not demonizing every Christian denomination out there, but I will say that there are certain denominations out there that are anti-Christian and Christians should should flee from. I'm not quibbling over even small points of doctrine. I'm talking about groups that are saying you can be saved apart from Christ. You must embrace what God says is evil in order to be part of us. You must avoid those. So I think step one is going to where Jesus is. If you want to keep your eyes on Jesus, go find Jesus and you find a faithful church. And the name on the church is not necessarily an indicator of if she's a faithful church. Right. Right. We're starting in two different places, but we're coming at the same time. <laughs> we're, we're, we're making a big, I'm making one half the circle, you make the other half the circle. But but you got you to get there. I think finding a good church home is, is good. And I, I believe that you cultivate that individual spiritual life through prayer, through the sacraments, through the word. And then that community is built up together. Then you have a united church, a church that is practicing these disciplines that Paul talks about here in Colossians 3. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So a church cannot be perpetually divided. People cannot be slandering each other within the congregation and always mad at each other in the congregation. They must forgive one another. They must be humble. They must love one another. They must listen to the word, be submissive to the word. And what in every jot and tittle of that word. In that way, we are not like the things of the world. The world says egalitarianism is the way to go. The world says whatever I believe, whatever I think is what is right, and I should always have my way. The customer is always right. But you are not a customer in God's church. You are a sheep in the shepherd's sheepfold. And so you follow after him and what that looks like. That is how you keep focused upon him. Uh, strong churches, loving one another, the gospel at the heart of it, the word of God at the heart of it. And that trickles, not trickles down, that flows into your homes as well and out of your homes and back in. Right. Well, and especially because if we are acting in earthly ways, or if these churches are you know, leading us to act in earthly ways, you know, that is something that's going to bring our attention down to the earth. You know, that's why Paul pre- preaches against immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, covetousness, all of these things. You know, you must put all of these things away. 
And that is the way in which we will find, you know, that uh, to, to learn how to look up basically to where Christ is. And I, I think your your point about like these uh, these churches too is is an important one because too often we see churches or those who are claiming to be churches having their doctrines, having their ideas, having everything about them set by the world. Mm-hmm. You know, the world is basically telling them what they can and can't think. And they basically are, you know, how how far behind are we from where the world is? Well, some churches are even ahead of it. You know, some churches are just lagging behind it a little bit. But, you know, trying to find that kind of worldly approval, that kind of the the, the applause of the world is also being earthly minded. Right. You know, our Lord Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And, you know, how beautiful it is when brothers dwell in unity. I'm putting all kinds of things together here. Uh, The church together is the light of the world, is that city on a hill. And when we dwell together in a way that looks even close to what Colossians 3 is talking about, there we begin to honor the ascended Lord. And there the ascended Lord is also present. And there God the Father blesses and there God the Holy Spirit dwells as well. And we shouldn't discount amid all the buffetings of the world, all the stressors of our life and all the assaults of the devil. We should never doubt God's presence with us and God, God's presence in heaven. God is in heaven and that is a great comfort. God is in heaven and God is not far off. God is nearer to us and he rules and reigns from the heavens. And that should give us great comfort. And he is building up not only you, Zelwyn, not only me, Zelwyn, but all of those who cling to the true gospel and who hold hold on to Jesus, who grasp the hem of his garments, uh, those who are washed in his blood and have received his name through the washing of the water of the word. You're you're going you're going to make it. You're going to make it, fam. It's going to be okay. Well, and I to to piggyback on that too. Oh, you know what Jesus is talking about there in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, if salt has lost its saltiness, how can its saltiness be restored? Right. If the salt becomes earthly, if the salt becomes like the rest of the world, what use is it? Right. What use is it to be like the world? Then you don't offer anything to the world. And if, you know, like Paul says, you know, talking about if if, if there is no resurrection, we are of, above all men most to be pitied. Yes. Be different. <laughs> Yeah, right. It's good to be different because that's who we are called to be. Right. And you're going to be weird. The world's going to insult you. Who cares? It's passing away. It is passing away. It will not last. It will not matter. And they will be lost to history. But you will be remembered forever in the Lamb's Book of Life. Pretty good deal. Pretty good gig. Pretty awesome gig because to know that the world is, is dying but your Lord sits as king at the right hand of, of the Father forever. Right. Worry about what he thinks. Don't worry about what everybody <laughs> yes, else thinks. Exactly. Well, we got just a couple minutes left. Any final words for the folks at home? Honestly, I think this, all of this together, and I know we've kind of covered a lot of ground here, all of this together should really emphasize the great importance of ascension of the ascension of our Lord. And I know that, you know, we talk about it every Sunday in the creeds. When we say the creeds, we talk about it all the time, but it is something that we should emphasize more perhaps than we already do, because it is a central doctrine of our faith and a central part of our hope as Christians. And for that reason, we really should talk about it more than we, than we do. So this is something that I think, you know, I would encourage people to, to look into, you know, even if you just crack open a concordance and see how many times it talks about the right hand of God, you'd be surprised at how central this is to our understanding of who Jesus is and what it means to be a Christian. So we need to be in it more. Wouldn't you agree, Willie? Oh, absolutely. Take up and read. You'll be surprised. Uh, you'll be surprised what will happen. But no, it, it, it should be good. And uh, looking forward to continuing talking about some of these things and seeing what we have coming up in the future. Amen. Well, this has been Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zoe and Heidi. God love you and God bless.
The chariots of God are twenty thousand, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them as in Sinai in the holy place. Thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. Psalm 68, 17 and 18.